0: This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the Bindal people of Thalgari Waja, and the Kaba people of Kurambilbara, the traditional custodians on the land we stand today. We pay our respects to Elders, past and present. We recognise the ongoing intergenerational trauma caused by colonisation and genocide, and that many of those policies and power structures remain in place today. We acknowledge the ongoing struggles of First Nations people in dismantling those structures, And the struggle to seek justice. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In the oh,
1: heat no, of the welcome everyone to another episode of Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, where we talk about news and current events from a feminist perspective. My name's Leah. And I'm Steph. And this week we are very pleased to be joined by Celeste Little, who is a Runda woman, a unionist, feminist, writer, speaker, and the new Greens candidate for Cooper. Welcome Celeste. Thanks for having me on board. Absolutely a pleasure I was,
0: Anytime, oh my God, literally
1: anytime. I was yeah, <laughs> so Celeste. You're the new Greens candidate for Cooper. How did this happen?
2: Oh, okay. So, so I don't know how new it is anymore because um I was pre-selected <laughs> back in um May last year. So, so we're now verging on oh, nearly 11 months. <laughs> nearly 11 months. All right, the the latest candidate for Greens then. <laughs> um but but yeah, how did it happen? Um oh, look, I've I've been pretty, um, it's been a run for me, so I've been pretty open my entire public um, career, for want of a better term, because I have have been a writer and social commentator now for over a decade, that there is no way in hell I would ever consider running for politics. You know, and and pretty hardcore views on the fact that, um, and I still believe this, even though I'm running for politics. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that real change happens at the grassroots and out there on the streets in the communities, rather than in the in the white halls of establishment um, politics. So, so um, yeah, me actually running is a bit of a surprise to me too, but um, <laughs> it was suggested to me, probably, you know. A, um, just over a year ago now or asked if I'd consider it and um, to be honest like any other year I probably would have said no but um, coming off the back of the pandemic we'd been in the first year of COVID by that point I'd seen you know the, the wage gap the rich getting richer um, so yeah. many people losing their jobs and um, I work with higher education in my real job so I saw a massive like job loss um within that sector that was just devastating um and and the other thing that I saw a lot of was a policing of what was a health crisis. So yeah. I wasn't seeing investment in public infrastructure. I was seeing instead um, a reliance on policing and policing methods, and the people who were falling victim to that were the most vulnerable members of our society who could least afford it. So it was kind of you know weighing all that up and seeing where I thought everything was going. I thought you know yeah I've I've still got those those um, standpoints. I still think that real street real change happens in the streets and in the communities but unless there's checks and balances in the halls of power um, we're unlikely to see any change um, and any you know legislative difference at all. Um, so that was why I said okay yep I'll give it a shot. There's another part to this that I'll just bore you with and that (laughs) is that so I first moved to the um, area that Cooper collects um, in 1997 and apart from uh, about a three-year gap in there, I've lived here ever since. So Mm. I've lived here for over over 21, nearly 22 years. When I first moved here, this was the safest labour seat in the country and because of that safety Mm. of the seat, I've very much feel it's being taken for granted um the other part was that i saw over a period of time that you know the greens with um alex Vital running and with the darwin branch started chipping away at that lead as more and more people became disillusioned by labor party policies and um started seeking more progressive alternatives so in 2016 the greens actually won the primary vote here and only lost it you know to the labor party based on where liberal preferences went so i wanted to try and assist i guess in a way of um in making this seat a bit more democratic giving the voters here a choice because the voters like you know This Mm. seat isn't a contest between Labor and Liberals. It's actually a contest of the progressives, um, you know, and on the progressive side, unless people have choice on the progressive side of politics, Mm. then it's not very democratic. So I was hoping to increase democracy and increase a bit of interest in what was going on here. So we'll see how it goes. (laughs) That's fantastic. Just going back to
1: your point about getting some space in mm. Parliament. So often, like on the grassroots, we're like, no, we can't engage in Parliament. We can't eng- engage in government because that's against our values. But meanwhile, all these people who are corrupt and terrible with bad politics are being like, well, it's not against my values. I'm going to come in here and pass all this legislation that's going to ruin other people's lives. So I, I agree. We need, mm. we need both. We need representation in parliament, and we need to do the work at a grassroots level. I absolutely yeah,
2: yeah. And you know, I think that we see so much evidence of this. Like if I was talking an Indigenous perspective, and the amount of bad legislation that's been passed, that has impacted Mm. Indigenous communities over and over again, like the um, like the Northern Territory Intervention, like the Basics Card, which we're now seeing um, rolled out nationwide. um, You know, as Inju. like even um, even to go more broadly, things like the marriage equality vote that should never have happened. Yeah. The fact that you know, there's people in there blocking progress, there's people in there making oppressive legislation, and without other people in there challenging them, they just have the right to run roughshod over entire communities. Yeah. It's Yeah. So yeah. So it kind of it, you know even. Yeah even those of us who do work at the grassroots kind of need a representation in there yeah no
1: absolutely you know it's kind of what we do until we get to the point where yeah. we can actually tear the whole system down so jumping back again to it not being a competition how did the labor how did the <laughs> labor members uh, take your announcement to run
2: <laughs> did they take it well <laughs> we no all saw no, oh, no, they took it appallingly. Yep. Um, You know, it was actually pretty disgraceful, um, the blowback that I got, because I am running against a, a progressive Labour woman who um, was the former president of the ACTU and with the ANMF for a very, very long time and Jed Carney. Like, she's not an offensive person. She certainly no... Um, Martin Ferguson or David Feeney, which are the two Labor members that preceded her in this seat. Like, um, She's a little bit more in line with the mm-hmm. views of a lot more people in this seat than what they ever could have been. Um, but there was some sort of idea from a lot of these people who were blowing back at me that Labor were entitled to this seat, that I was taking, I was threatening the job of a, of a good progressive Labor woman, and I shouldn't do that. I should go run against a horrible white liberal man somewhere else. Like, you know, as if it's not slightly problematic that they t- should tell an Aboriginal woman to move on elsewhere, you know, in the first place. But, yep. you know, some of the people that I was getting flowback from were actually people who held pretty high-up Labor positions. Like, one of them was a former CEO of Emily's. um <laughs> sorry
1: i tried to volunteer for emily's list and it was just it was no
2: (laughs) another one of them was on the board of one of the major um health providers in this area and was a former um senior industrial officer for one of the big unions i'm not gonna not gonna say which one (laughs) but um yeah i'm sure that you know google can probably pull that one together for people but um Martin Pakula had something to say. Penny Wong was retweeting stuff, you know, um, about me running. It was just appalling. And I'm just sort of, why are you lot so afraid of democracy? Like, as an Aboriginal woman, this is a system that I feel very much that you've forced upon me and that, um, that, you know, I'm running for in order to diversify the voices within it because they haven't served our communities, you know, at all. And yet for some reason they seem to be seem to be afraid of a democratic challenge. And that's um, like you know, that's not even talking about the margin that I was pre selected with. Like the margin on this seat, um, at the time of my pre-selection, who knows what it is now or following my election, but at the time of my pre selection, the margin on this seat was fourteen point eight percent to Labour. So the sheer carry on about a progressive Aboriginal woman who had some sort of public presence and worked in the union movement running against a union, you know, a white union woman from (laughs) Labor, um, was extraordinary. And it went on for weeks and I noticed it very much. um, I hate to say it, but, you know, after me, I saw so many announcements of Greens candidates um, all over the country being put up and nowhere near the sort of response that me running got. I saw other people in this seat. The the extraordinary Kath Likens is running for Vic Socialists in the Cedar Cooper as well, and she too has a strong union background and nowhere near the backlash. So it was just me, and I can only conclude that it was me on the basis of the fact that I'm Aboriginal, I went for the unions, and I'm known as a left-wing presence in the media. Mm.
1: (laughs) hints of racism
2: yeah well the way that they chose to talk to me um was always patronizing and gaslighting and And I'm just sort of, you do realise, like, it's no use patronising me. I have multiple (laughs) university qualifications, you know. I'm just sort of, I've proven that I'm intelligent enough to be able to hold an argument in the mainstream media. So, you know, the, the fact that they thought that they could talk down to me in those sorts of ways suggests, you know, veiled racism and that, um, and and yeah. sexism but the types of racism and sexism the you know the left doesn't think that they're perpetrators of even though they are all the time
1: well um, it can't be sexism yeah, because they're and, defending
2: jet so that's not sexist well <laughs> no you know yeah yeah it was it was really telling yeah. it was really telling there was an assumption that i was too stupid to understand what i was doing through their tweets and I knew exactly what I was doing. I, you know, <laughs> sat there and these, pondered these at branches. These kind of people, like these, I'm, I'm going to call them
1: centrist because they are, but they constantly mm. misunderstand. I think because of, I think you've borne the brunt of um, the intersect of racism and sexism, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, you just give me strong, why do you think you can fuck with me vibes? Like, <laughs> genuinely, how do you think you can get away with this and that I will let you get away with this? It's incredible. The audacity is knows no bounds.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the entitlement knows yeah. no bounds too after.
1: Yeah. Well, obviously, like, how dare you mm. run in a seat? This is our seat. <laughs> Oof. it's Look, honestly, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. I'm trying to find, where did my sheet go? Oh, my God. I've just got a photo of Jacinta Price just popped up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, bless her. <laughs> Oh you know I'm finding it um, as an Indigenous Territorian too I you know Jacinta Price has long been a bit of a bit of a public sphere nemesis of mine her and her mother actually because you know the whole sort of conservative Aboriginal woman versus progressive Aboriginal woman thing has been yeah the, the media likes to play off that a bit but I am kind of in a strange roundabout way, looking forward to seeing her get into the Senate and um, seeing that stronger yeah. presence of Aboriginal voices from all persuasions in, in both houses of Parliament because then all of a sudden a bunch of white Australians wearing suits are going to have to listen to Indigenous debate happening on the floor in front of them and that's going to be interesting. It, yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> but also why shouldn't it?
2: I don't yeah, know, I, yeah.
1: I, I've always struggled with, like, a, mine and just Enterprise's policies and politics don't align at all. No. But, I mean, <laughs> no. But I I just, I actually genuinely struggle to criticise them because I just, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a First Nations person in the Northern Territory trying to get your voice into Parliament. Mm. Like, I just, I mm, look, I don't, yeah, I mm, I'm just gonna sit this one out <laughs> I'm just gonna go over here and have a drink like it's it's not for me yeah and I really struggle when people criticize like I feel like it's really punching down when white people have a go I'm just like uh, but at the same time it's okay to I don't know I saw I think I'm um, watching total control
2: yeah yeah
1: with Deb mailman particularly the first season made me really. Just like look at the look at it from a different perspective, which I think is really important. Mm. So we've sort of we've touched on a few things here. How how much do you think white feminism is is playing into your response? Like, are
2: you getting support from white feminists or? Yeah and no. So um, <laughs> you know it's always. Oh, can I hashtag not all white feminists? Um, <laughs> Look, like
1: we're all we're all racist. Let's not pretend we're not. We've been we've been raised in a system of white supremacy. It would be impossible for us to yeah, not take some and, of that off. And a,
2: a fair chunk of the backlash that I got was 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 from white labor women. So it was very much, you know. That white feminism that is you're you're trying to take a seat from a progressive white, you know, progressive Labour woman, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you stand for the Senate? Why wouldn't you go stand elsewhere? Um, Totally missing the point of what I said at the very beginning of all this, which was that I have repeatedly said that I would never run for Parliament and that I don't believe changes. And the idea in the first place that I'd put myself up for politics obviously has come from a very sort of strong you know strong amount of consideration on my behalf as to as for what I feel at this point in time needs to happen in order for there to be change so I'm no politician I'm no career politician I um yeah yeah and I've never aspired to to politics as a career I don't think politics is a career I think that it's um you know, I think that too many politicians see it as that, and if the electorate decides whether or not a person gets a um, second go, I and that's fair. That's the way it should be. You know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, a lot of the criticism I got was from those white feminists. It was very much, oh, you can you can do this, but not like that. You know not like that yeah on on our terms yeah you know it was just then like today Albo has said some pretty wanted stuff in the media to, in the last 24 hours last 24 to four years the last six months. <laughs> well yeah yeah let's be honest let's be honest but um you know the last 24 hours too, to joe hildebrandt for the for the daily De- telegraph and um it was amazing to me, like there were so many offensive things that he said from a leftist, indigenous, renter, working class, you know, internationalist kind of perspective that I was taking issue with. And I did have a couple of white feminists pop up in my mentions. Um, the only thing that they wanted to talk about was was his first um, point, which was, you know, can men have babies? No. And I'm just sort of, this is the only, like, you know, you're trying to railroad me with this one point, um, and this is the only one that you want to haggle on. Like, you know. these are all the issues I can point out to yeah. you, what he has actually said, including that, that I've got a problem with. Um, but this is the only one that you want to talk about. Like, let's be honest here, you know. So, yeah, I... Um, I have had a lot of fight with white feminists, but I've also, you know, had some productive discussions with, you know, more progressive white feminists, definitely ones who understand structural oppression a bit better um, Mm. and other feminists of colour um which is which is helpful so i guess those sorts of more positive exchanges and encouraging and even um the labor women who saw what was going on to me and saw the pylon that i was experiencing and said no nah, this is rubbish you lot can't do this and we're taking active stance against their own um yeah i i was deeply appreciative of that sort of stuff so you know it was it's been a real mix it really has that's fantastic mm. it's
1: a- You want to see more of the genuine women supporting women as opposed to the women supporting women, again, on their terms or the women that are going to be helpful to other women will support them. That is good to see. I didn't
2: know Labor had one but that's good. <laughs> well, we're sort of, you know, the, the ones that I'm talking about were just sort of imagine if all seats had this kind of choice. Like, you know, they weren't just dealing with one progressive woman but actually two or three that they could choose from. Like, you know, imagine mm. if all seats had that. Imagine how much more inspiring democracy would be in this country if that was the kind of choice that people had. So... So the types of people playing those sorts of arguments whilst also stating that I have every right to run for parliament in whatever party that I, or not, you know, that I choose to do so. And what right did anyone have to tell me otherwise in a democratic situation? So it was good to see that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Following on from the, the response you got from the Labour candidates and the backlash, do you think that's going to have a flow on effect to other Indigenous or First Nations candidates?
2: Um... Yeah, yeah, like positive and negative. So some of them have seen the backlash Mm. that I received and gone, no, not having a bar of that. This is why it's so toxic. So... They've activated in other spaces, so um, mm. you know. Um, I guess the, the flip side of that is that they've seen the backlash that I've received for running and have decided that they're going to run themselves or do various other things. So I've been told by a couple of Aboriginal people, I um couple of other people of color as well so not just aboriginal people but settlers of color you know from other backgrounds that me deciding to run um and batting back the way that I did on that sort of stuff because anyone who saw me playing it um yeah playing it out saw me doing it in a way that actually ran rings around these nasty people like I made them look really stupid and i'm pretty i'm pretty proud of the way that i did that fair enough yeah no well they were yeah exactly (laughs) So, so um yeah you know seeing me do that and seeing me be able to do it with with not only clarity but humor has actually inspired a few other people to run. So the Greens are now running um thanks to Lydia's activism the Greens in Victoria are running an all aboriginal senate ticket and I you know I personally spoke to a couple of people who are on that who you know decided that they were going oh why not we'll we'll go for it and see how we go. Yeah and I'm seeing it around the country and other places as well. So yeah it's kind of it's caused some to pull away some to decide to go for it but I think probably more than anything it's kind of helped show the importance of the interplay between our between our grassroots activists and different ways that we can we can activate in these halls of power and I'll be honest with me too like um I I probably should have said this at the beginning but if if I hadn't seen someone like Olivia Thorpe get up there and you know and be in the in the Victorian Parliament and then in the Senate and deliver the sovereignty speeches that she's delivered in both those places. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have considered it myself either. Like, you know, sometimes you actually need to see somebody else play out those scenarios before you realise that you can do it too or you can do it in mm-hmm. different ways and there's compliments and there's pushes and pulls that can happen. Yeah, so so I've got to give a shout out to Lydia um in the way that she's inspired a lot of other aboriginal people and um that therefore, you know, through her inspiring me, I've hopefully inspired others. No, absolutely. Lydia has been
1: incredible in parliament. Like I just I mean first thing that comes to mind is like forgetting pauline Hanson's name <laughs> poetry what's her name yeah Poetry. <laughs> that one what's her face oh my god it was gorgeous yeah but just her staunch approach and constant calling out and sort of pulling people up on things like even something that a lot of people would think is quite small like referring to them as an aboriginal australian mm. i thought that that was so powerful because it's so such a thing that so many people don't actually consider
2: yeah,
1: and they don't think about what that means so I thought that was really incredible Mm. but yeah, I don't know. Steph, do you have any favourite Lydia moments?
0: All of them I I know It is is refreshing to see somebody who actually speaks for their community
1: Mm. And for their community, not to get re-elected but to
0: do good You've got Labour couching their words and being coy and not committing either one way or another and then all, being <laughs> offensive to everyone in the process. And then you have Lydia mm, Thorpe who just, mm. you know, I don't want to say, you, you know, that conservative thing of, you know, saying it like it is, of going, no, she speaks from her heart. Mm. And that is mm. super rare. Yeah. And it is su- that is what is one of the things that's missing in that place before we burn it down. Sorry, mm. gosh, we'll cut that out.
2: <laughs> no. No, I'm not, look, you know, yeah. burning it down, why not? Um... Yeah, every time... Metaphorically, of course. Every time an Aboriginal woman says, or, you know, or um, non-binary person says anything about burning down white structures, we always get media, so why not? Yeah, let's burn it down. Um,
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, there's that Sky News, um, how to make a Molotov cocktail that's been uh, floating around since the Ukrainian war, you know. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah.
0: I'm actually a little bit disturbed by how much of these how-to things that came from my childhood growing up in a cold are now starting to become mainstream. And because it's war mm. happening to white people, you know, like the imagine the horror if you saw the same thing with Indigenous people having a how-to-make-a-Molotov cocktail workshop as opposed to, you know, these white Ukrainian women sitting in a circle making Molotov cocktails.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's always women. It's always
2: women making the
1: cocktails, yeah. isn't
2: it? Oh, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, just to give a little bit of me and Lydia history, and and it, I think it gives a bit of context because yeah I've seen her be in there and be real and um and you know I can't honestly say at the end of the day that she, anything she does in Parliament is about her maintaining power. She's actually in there fighting for people continuously, even when she gets to, you know, get exactly. something wrong and yep. learns and has to apologise. She's always in there fighting for people. Um and that's inspiring. But I remember um her and i were on an international women's day panel quite a few years back and we had this interesting moment where somebody um because i was i was perceived as being the grassroots activist and she was perceived as being the you know the establishment kind of person who was using the parliamentary system and we got thrown a question in that vein and i had to correct them because i'm just sort of well actually what you're talking about here is a woman who has come up through activism you know that was a there was a mother at 17 a grandmother in her early 40s you know dropped out of school young has had to fight tooth and nail in in the white capitalist um masculinist you know supremacist australia in order to get anywhere mm. and now she's in parliament whereas someone like me who we finished school, um, went on to uni, has been working full time ever since she finished uni, and um, and has used her skills as a writer in order to convey stuff. So, so you know, yeah, I I don't think that you can necessarily call one of our approaches more grassroots than the other based on that sort of thing. Like she's very much came from the community and the community is where she's going to go when she's finished up with this, gig. Like, you know, she will go straight back into it. And how many politicians are going to do the same? Like, you know, it's not really a normal career path for them and it's not really where they've come from either. Mm.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, true. Isn't, isn't the trajectory after you finish in parliament is to go work at a bank yeah. or a
0: lobbyist yeah. or arms dealer or some sort of consulate
1: in switzerland somewhere (sighs) i don't know yeah
2: Mm.
1: no that's uh, incredible absolutely incredible mining company
0: (laughs) oil company (laughs) oh jesus
1: (gasps) this is why we need more progressive people like genuinely like and i i feel like sometimes the word progressive is kind of meaningless but i feel like sometimes Mm. the word leftist is also kind of meaningless (laughs) so But I I suppose feminist, progressive feminist, intersectional feminist, people going into parliament and actually fighting for these legislative changes and these introducing bills and you know I'm just I'm just so sick of having like women in government and that's all we need and all of a sudden we've got equality Mm -hmm. now like Labour with their what's their
2: is their cabinet fifty percent women yeah yeah or at least that was what they were aiming for if they haven't got it already (laughs) now.
1: Yes, yeah, but that's just, like, 50% women who are voting to keep kids in cages. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, like being a woman doesn't mean it.
0: Yay, more women drone pilots. Exactly.
1: It's, yeah, so more feminists, more intersectional views. And I think we, we spoke on our, our last episode about needing more diverse voices because diverse vo- voices means diverse lived experience. Mm-hmm. And it just widens the lens. There's so many, like, things like The Letter Speak... Legislation that got through that was actually silence victim survivors, that wouldn't have got through if we had more feminist voices in parliament, and more representation. And all it all it seems to do is make us like have to fight for things that we already fought for, like this religious discrimination mm-hmm. bill, all these things that they keep trying on every year. There's the march for the babies every year. There's mm-hmm. something else that we have to like. We apparently have these rights in inverted commas. So just. More Celeste's, more Lydia's, mm-hmm. more Dorinda Coxes, more, yeah, it's amazing. It's it's just it's so heartening to see. It's really exciting. I'm really excited. I actually joined the Greens when you announced your candidacy. Oh, <laughs>
2: That's one thing that I have heard, actually. There were a few people who joined. <laughs> Sorry.
0: So the government response to COVID was not good. That first lockdown was supposed to increase capacity of the healthcare system so that when we opened up and when we started to get vaccinated and when we started to have all of these, you know, these um, complementary measures in place, that the healthcare system wouldn't collapse and, like, nothing was done. Mm-hmm. Although that money that was spent on, on, that should have been spent on hospitals was spent on police and army yeah
2: it was it was really um it was a disturbing and distressing thing to watch play out so um yeah yeah like that that was the aim of the first lockdown, even the second I'd say, you know we're just sort of oh we're in a, we're in the grips of a way um but but more than anything, I think that what probably troubled me was the failures on the left um to mobilize around a few things. I um I, I would have thought that at the very least during the first, you know, the first year of COVID that um vast quantities of money would have been pumped into public health, would have been pumped into public housing because they um at the beginning of COVID, for example, you know, our homeless rates prior to that have been climbing. And so a lot of the a lot of the rough sleepers in the CBD got put up in hotels for for several months, and then we get to the end of October, and a lot of them were booted out back on the streets again. Um, you know, it, the um, I'll never forget actually the between the first and the second wave. So I don't know if he's remember, but. Um, Initially, a lot of the blame for the second wave got put back on the Black Lives Matter rally. So we were seeing media coverage, and I'm talking conservative through to yeah. public um, media. So even the ABC was buying in on this, um, and the government wasn't coming out and saying this is inaccurate um, because, you know, for well, for all sorts of reasons. The, um, but what we eventually found out, the reason why they weren't coming out and denying that it had been um, it had been an outbreak caused by Black Lives Matter protesters. Oh, and there's another funny funny bit of information on that protest that I keep repeating, but I'll go back to that after I finish this this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, is that um, the outbreak was actually it was a workplace crisis. It was happening through the the government's neoliberalised hotel quarantine scheme. So, you know, the outsourcing to private security, who then outsourced to other private security, who then outsourced further to private contractors within private security, who then sent it onto their mates via WhatsApp sort of messages. Nobody's given adequate training. Nobody's given proper PPE to go into work. so basic things like handing a, cig- a cigarette lighter between two people ended up with you know massive outbreak. We yep. saw massive yep. spreads in in two other industries. Um, one was like um, the meatworks sector. So people working working in mass-produced <sighs> abattoirs and butcheries and those sorts of things, and going in there and again not having proper equipment or or um, hygiene sort of measures in order to make sure that they were safe at work so workplace health and safety legislation hadn't been beefed up properly in order to
0: but didn't they didn't they try and blame it on a migrant family um having a um like a wedding or a birthday celebration yeah
2: yeah well that was the time so you know when they failed trying to blame it on um the black lives matter rally because it was clear that it hadn't come from that within two weeks um they started talking about it being, you know, migrant families having big gatherings at the end of Ramadan. So that was what they started blaming it on, like, you know, all those big migrant families, they breed too much and spread it throughout when in actual fact it was it was a workplace crisis and um, it went hotel security, meatworks and then um, also aged care where you've got a lot of insecure workers who were working at several nursing homes and... Um, all of which had been privatised, you know, generations ago through, again, neoliberalising government measures, Um, you know. So people who couldn't afford to just have one job and one safe and secure job were working between jobs and then it just ripped through that workforce and the people that they look after, elderly people in our communities like wildfire. So we lost so many old people. Um, due to that yeah it was just extraordinary it was so devastating and the fact that instead of taking measures to to bring aged care back on into the public sector to properly fund the health sector you know to do those sorts of things um, we saw scapegoating we saw the blaming on ethnic families we saw the increase of policing um, like police ended up with extraordinary amounts of weaponry and additional funding mm. and the premier announced that he was building new prisons and hiring 300 corrections guards during you know the first year of covid um yeah it's just like you know i i feel like um i spent a lot of time fighting with lefties which are probably more moderate um labor people yeah. online um you know, about these kinds of civil rights abuses that I was seeing play out in real time. And they're cheering on of policing measures. Yeah, it was extraordinary.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of bootlegging.
2: There was so a lot of Um There was a lot of tolerance for things like the tower lockdown, right? What the hell? You criminalise entire towerfuls of vulnerable people. Yeah,
1: <laughs> How, yeah. I
2: don't, understand.
1: it's literally state mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. It's. Quite literally. Oh, my goodness. That was that was so horrific. That was so horrific to see. Yeah. And yep. even, like, I was a part of a group of people, uh, well, renters and housing, Rahu, renters and housing union. Yeah. Yeah, we got together and we tried to organise um, food drop-offs and things mm. like that. But we couldn't even get that into the people because the cops wouldn't let us through the – it was just I – got, I got to a point where I'm like, right, I'm going to get some <laughs> – and we didn't do this, obviously. I'm gonna get some some weed killer, and I'm gonna write a cab in, <laughs> in the grass, in the big oval across the road. But we didn't do that because. So
2: it was a very real threat at the time. Like um, the 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 fun fact that I was going to throw in about the Black Lives Matter rally yeah. was that um you know that there was never any community spread at the Black Lives Matter rally, and we all knew that from really early on. Um, but but we were simultaneously breaking the law whilst yeah. adhering to the law during that rally because we we're all wearing masks, which was a COVID directive at the time. Um, so we we're all adhering to the laws that existed in order for public you know, health and safety. But um, the, the Andrews government a couple of years prior had actually legislated um, to ban masks at rallies if you remember, due to the um, anti-fascist versus the fascist clashes in Melbourne, um, so so we we're breaking the law whilst adhering to it, and I'm just like, well, this is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and what way is it going to go after all this? Like, will it still be illegal to wear a mask at a rally? <laughs> you know, because well, I hope. not. <laughs>
1: Also, I don't <laughs> yeah. care. Mm-hmm. Like, that was that was one of the interesting things that came out of COVID was, like, um, they were trying to... Like, I don't know if you remember the Refugee Action Collective and Chris Breen getting fined for mm-hmm. an incredibly lawful... Dr-
2: driving yeah, for yeah, yeah. driving
1: around the block. Just
2: up the road here, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah it, I think he was arrested before that even happened. Mm-hmm. So it was just, like, very um, minority report situation. So they started trying to put in place a permit system, mm. that they were using COVID to try and implement this yes, system. yeah. And I'm just like, on what planet do you apply to the government to protest the mm-hmm. government? Yeah. I mm, I don't know. I haven't because we were doing – we've done slut walk via 3CR so we haven't actually done it on the streets until yeah. this year. But I know that the the March for Justice people –
2: were applying mm-hmm. for permits. It, it's it's sadly quite normal in places like Sydney to do that. And I've had arguments with people because I didn't realise it was normal in Sydney to apply for a permit to protest. I'm just sort of, no, you don't need permission to protest. Like the the right to assemble is a protected human right, you know, under the UN <laughs> Declaration of Human Rights. So yeah. So no, you. <laughs> you, yeah, don't, go to you don't actually need a, pro- <laughs> a permit to protest but um yeah the permit system and trying to push us to apply to have protest that's something we've got to keep an eye on i think the other thing as activists that we do have to keep an eye on when this is all finished is the idea of incitement so we saw that play out with that um
0: Oh, yeah. what's her name?
2: She was she was a
0: uh... member of Reignite Democracy. Yeah,
2: yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to remember her name. Um, you know, I hate to I hate to it? say this, but little blonde thing with the cooker brigade. Um, <laughs> and she ended up being done and serving. I think it was nine days or two weeks or something like that in prison. Um, for incitement, and her her incitement was merely just you know talking about people getting together and protesting on the streets of melbourne and i i was getting really worried about the left at this time too because i'm just sort of you know at that same time that she was going into prison Mm. saying okay fine you know i'm not i'm not paying a fine for this you can just lock me up for incitement um at the same time she was doing that kids weren't allowed to play on play equipment in parks and that um and I saw some kids at a park taking their dog for a walk up and down a slide and, you know, across all the jungle gym sort of things. And I thought, oh, that's a cool way to get around the, you're not allowed to play mm-hmm. on play equipment. We're just taking our dog for a walk, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, So I just wrote about that on Twitter and then I saw this all play out and I'm just sort of, well, if you can write stuff on Twitter or Facebook and they're watching it and um, – you know, you've got multiple law enforcers, whether it's the big police or it's ASIO or it's um, the feds or whatever else, watching our social media and then taking something that we say and criminalising it under this new sort of incite, idea of incitement. Like, um, mm. yeah, what's the future for that going to be? Like, if I, if I announce on Facebook next year we're having an Invasion Day rally on the 26th of January, um, please come along. Would that be incitement? I think that we need to keep a real eye on um on the civil rights that are being depleted under under COVID and um and which mm. ones actually get you know, we we actually get back or which ones we still have to fight for. We need to be keeping a real eye on legislation here, I think. Mm. Again, another reason why we need more mm. people
1: like you in Parliament. <sighs> Mm. bringing it on back (laughs) but it's it's so true it was actually quite scary how much the government i mean i can only really speak for victoria but how much the government was using covid as a way to reduce the freedoms Mm. to protest and the rights to protest and things like that but at the same time it was incredibly frustrating watching those cookers take like feminist slogans and leftist slogans, yes, and sort yeah. of reinventing My body, them my choice. Yeah. As anti-vax. Oh, oh don't. With something else. <laughs> oh. That keeps me up at night.
0: <laughs> I wanted to throw eggs. I saw it at the at one of the ones here up here, and just going. <laughs> I have a carton of thirty-six <laughs> eggs in the fridge.
1: Like they stream past their house with their. They're almost like the UN. They've got that many national flags. My goodness! It's all all colonizers, (laughs) of course, and they're all like chanting like incoherently and out of sync, which is probably one of the funniest things.
0: Cookers Mm. first protest. It's
1: it's a sight to behold. But yeah, it is really concerning because I remember there was stuff happening with Neil Erikson a few years back, and I was saying to Mm. Tom Tanaki "I'm like, this is really cool," and Tom's like, (laughs) "No, it is not." Yes. They will use that against us. And I'm just like, you are a smart person. Tom has,
2: throughout a fair chunk of this, been, oh, I don't know, like, you know, Tom and I are mates. We go way back now. But um, every time I felt myself a little bit challenged by something, I'd just go running over to his page to see what he was saying about it. Because that's a that's a bloke that actually yep. sits down and takes apart from a leftist perspective what we need to be keeping an eye on and does so in such an accessible way. So, yeah, much admire, much admiration yeah, for the old five yeah. um, flag general. Or... <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, look, anyone who has very similar, if not the same, politics as me, and can actually yeah. read <laughs> Jordan Peterson's book. I, I just, mm-hmm. I almost threw it into the ocean. Like, I was just like, because I, I totally agree. If there's, if someone has got views that you oppose read their literature read what they have to say know what they're trying to say and then you can understand what their motivation is and then you can approach it from that way (laughs) i just i don't have that i don't have that patience in me i i don't care jordan peterson can mm, go somewhere else with other (laughs) things yep (laughs) i play these room i don't know so
2: let's move on from the cookers (laughs) hopefully hopefully the cookers burn themselves out soon
1: So running as a candidate with the Greens, what Mm -hmm. are the policy points that you're most excited about?
2: So I am definitely excited about the Indigenous policies that the Greens have. Um, You know, there's this incredible group um, of Black Greens within the Greens and they've sat down and they've drafted all of this, but um, the fact that we're 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 going you know first for a truth telling process and then treaty and then voice to parliament sort of deal um to me fits in very much with um with what I'd say because um i'd I'd always had some problems with the Uluru statement and the fact that I saw that it was doing things backwards like you know um Asking for a voice that has um, that you know has no structure, that may or may not have any legislative pull, that may or not be um, descript- sorry democratically chosen from Indigenous people, we had no idea what it was going to entail. Um, but you know, if it is if a voice is formed um, from a treaty process, then there's certain things that we can negotiate for and make as part of that. Um, you know, similar to how the Maori have got um, designated seats in parliament that only Maori vote for, for example. Um, there's certain things that we can negotiate within that that um, the, the, the colonisers are then bound to abide by and if they don't adhere to them, then there's, there's tribunal, you know, there's, there's a way forward. Um, So I'm excited about that. I'm excited that a lot of the environmental policies are not just um, straight up care for the earth stuff, but they have actually been done in consultation with Indigenous groups. So things like, you know, Indigenous land management being front and centre as part of it and land rejuvenation programs as someone who comes from um, a Territory family and has seen you know some of the some of the land rejuvenation programs that have been going on there in the territory um with my family or with my my um sister-in-law's families and all of that like you know we've seen things like um bilbies for example almost be brought back from the grips of extinction due to their due to their um work trying to eradicate feral cats in certain regions you've seen um yeah, you've seen the removal of the cattle industry and the um, the way that that was degrading the waterways. Um, you've seen those sorts of things go on. Um, so, you know, there's so much hope for those yeah. sorts of land management programs, and particularly if we want an environment that's going to exist for future generations. But um, another thing that, well, there's a number of things, but I I'm really excited about the very ambitious 700% renewables target that the Greens have. So I I love the fact that a country like Australia could not just become 100% renewable energy ourselves, but could actually become one of the biggest producers of renewable technology for the rest yeah. of the world. So I, I think that that's incredible. Um, and we are precisely the right Kind of environment here to do it because we've got an abundance of solar power, you know, we've got an abundance of wind power through the roaring 40s currents and whatever, you know, the Mm. cyclones up the top, whatever else goes on in this country, we've got so much of it that we can actually, you know, um, become world leaders on this stage rather than world variants, which we currently are with our burning of coal. So I'm really excited about that. Um, You'll always get me when it comes to things like free education. I've worked in higher education for my entire adult life, whether that's in the university sector itself or for the union that works for the higher education sector. Um, So I am a strong believer that everyone has the right to free, quality public education. Absolutely. And that indeed, you know, it's absolutely crucial that it's available, um, you know, if this country does want to continue to go forward. Um, and I find it, um, you know, at a time when um, when so many countries in the world are actually not just be- having totally free education, um, including things like universities, but are actually opening their borders up and providing free education for international students. It's kind of it's kind of embarrassing that Australia is going more and more into the private sector and forcing people to pay more for degrees and um, you know funneling more public funds into private schools rather than probably funding public schools and you yeah. know so yeah yeah free education and free quality um education regardless of where people live where they're from you know all of that is definitely one I love um yeah and again you know tax the billionaires is is fantastic let's go um yeah
1: you know it's really good that it's a clear distinction between billionaires because when you say tax the rich it's there's a lot of people that are a bit like but I pay tax and I'm, you know, there's a difference between rich and billionaires, mm. I think. And I mean, obviously when Rousseau said it all those years ago, like there probably wasn't. But like taxing billionaires is so significant.
0: You know, back when we had the one cent piece and you could buy things for one cent. I
2: remember those days. <laughs> yeah, oh, i that old. Yeah.
1: <sighs> back in the days.
2: Yeah.
1: I can't, I don't know what else you used to be able to buy for one yeah. cent other than Lollies.
2: You needed was 20 cents for a full bag. It was brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, oh that's a lie that's what we want to get back <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah you know if you if you couple an idea of tax the rich to provide things like mental and dental covered by things like medicare or or free education or a, a yeah. publicly owned pharmaceuticals company like i find it extraordinary that a private pharmaceuticals company like Pfizer has just ended up you know running in so much profit through this uh, pandemic when in actual fact, this is a public health measure. You know, public solutions to it should be publicly funded and for the benefit of all. Oh, you know, it just kind of well, makes it mm. Yeah, patenting of.
0: They patented technologies, yeah. uh, you know, up to 20 years mm. old that they didn't pay for. And then they got government money yes. from, you know, like, and not just, not just the Australian government putting money into it, but the UK government, the American government. And you're sitting there just going. How the fuck can you pay for mm. that? Like you got you didn't pay for that development. Yeah. Yeah. Did.
2: yeah, those things and then I, I think the other thing is like, um, as a unionist, I I like the Greens policies on looking at things like the gig economy, like closing the gap between bosses and and workers and making sure that people have like you know stopping the stagnation of wage growth that we're seeing in the past few decades like yeah those sorts of things are so important and there's so many other policies that inspire me um the one one that i've been out apart from indigenous rights a lot is definitely refugees rights. Like, you know i'm i i'm just um so disgusted by decades of um, mandatory detention that was you know Brought in by Labor, expanded by the coalition, expanded again by Labor. And now, you know, here we are, 2022, and all of a sudden we've got a um, Ukrainian refugee crisis, and it's just sort of wave them on in, and here's a social safety net and an ability to work. Yet we're still locking people up in offshore detention centres because. They've come from the wrong wars, or they're the wrong colour, or whatever else. Um, I, I can't say how disgusted I am with our current asylum seeker policies. So, I am, yeah, definitely, definitely in support of a party that stands for significantly more humane um, processing of refugees and allowing them to, you know, be in society as soon as as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, like in line with the with the cons what is it the hang on what's it called again? oh yeah the
2: un convention on refugees
1: yeah yeah mm. yeah in in line with the un convention on refugees that we are signatory to yeah i mean i've been doing refugee mm. stuff since i was that was yeah. like my my entrance into activism yeah. really was uh a asylum seeker resource center in my 20s mm. and then like sort of going to rallies and protests and got a bit more radical from there but like yeah. I was just, I'm just like, it's, it's international law. I'm just like, mm-hmm. refoundment is
0: bad. Like it, like. It's it, n- not just bad. It's illegal. Well, it should be. A, yeah. <laughs> and this is the it's... thing that annoys me is that, you know, like you've, you've got labor and they have done the expansion. Of, um, you know, mm. look, if you don't like the 1951 refugee convention withdrawal, put your money yeah. where your mouth is. <laughs> Turn us mm. into an international pariah, but don't, we Aren't we already? Are. And, you know, like, it's it's funny because, um, you know, there's the sports debate that's going on and, you know, p- politics shouldn't be in sport. And you're sitting there going, <laughs> I'm not saying that we were in a really good position when we did yeah, um, joined yeah. in the boycotts against South Africa. <laughs> but for fuck's sake, people should be boycotting us. I would. Yeah, so would I. <laughs> Like, politics and sport have gone hand in hand.
2: Communist nations boycotted, like, during the Cold War and vice versa, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, everything is political.
1: I think it's um, <laughs> probably like an alt-right, really, perspective yeah. or an extremely pr- pr- privileged perspective to be able to say it's not political, it's different, it's separate. It's and, and in, it's incredibly ignorant on top of that. But it's, it's a really privileged position to be able to sort of separate yourself from something that is deeply political political Mm. to the people that it's directly affecting what you're saying when it's not political is you're saying it doesn't affect me Mm -hmm. put them in the bin boycott australia
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) i like it i reckon we can start this campaign i don't know how far we're gonna get but i like it
0: (laughs) (laughs) i imagine there'd be a few of our sporting rivals not that i'm much Mm. of a sporting person anymore but i imagine there's a few of our sporting
2: (laughs) new zealand would love it i'd love to boycott us Where they're embarrassing cousins they're off as soon as they can
1: (laughs) um quick question because i'm i i can't remember if i've read it or i haven't read it but what's um the greens policy on abortion i mean other than yes you should have it (laughs) if you want it
2: yeah yeah, and no, my understanding is that uh, you know abortion should be should be um publicly available and um, should be covered by Medicare and um, yeah available to all who who need it and seek it. Um, is are yeah. there any
1: are there any measures to make it discrimination to refuse an abortion? on the basis of faith?
2: To my knowledge, no. There's like, you know, they're pretty pretty clear that um, the right to abortion is a human right that people should be able to access if they need it and that people shouldn't be discriminated against for seeking it. Um, It's a medical procedure and therefore refusing it. Um, I don't know about criminalising on that basis, but they certainly don't support the right to refuse it on the grounds of... Look, I'll take (laughs) that. (laughs) <laughs> That's mm. fine. I really
1: want to I really want to start a conversation around especially after this yes, religious yeah. discrimination bill where they've essentially tried to gaslight mm. a nation into thinking that they're hard done by, especially considering all the acts that they tried to reverse were only in place in the first place arguably because of the church and, you know, religious conservative racist etc. Yeah, I I just want to draw people's attention to the fact that the church is mm-hmm. actually the one doing the discrimination, especially when it comes to uh, women's bodily autonomy. Uh, or, sorry, not just women. Uh, <laughs> people mm. who are intersex also have uteruses and, you know, men have uteruses too, all that kind of thing. But if you've got a uterus, you should be able to access that service, regardless of if the hospital mm. that you're attending is faith-based or not, especially yeah. if they're collecting yeah. public money.
2: Well, and yeah that's I, yeah. I think that's the thing like you, you, you think yeah but also three years of neoliberalization like the funding the the public funding of private sector providers over and over again has allowed for these sorts of gaps I think you know I really um I really have a problem in a way of just how much this country funds private sector things um whether it's you know, private hospitals, private schools, religious orgs to provide social housing. So we hear a lot about social housing at this point, not not a lot about public housing. You know, over and over again we see we see private organisations being funded by public monies, but not having to uphold public um, public values, public goals, public stances. You know, so so yeah. Um,
0: well, the accountability mechanism disappears mm. the moment you hand, hand that money yeah. over to a religious organization. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, or any
1: private organization.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, so Sorry. I think very much, at least personally, I strongly believe that you know, if it, if an organization receives public money to to provide public services, then they need to adhere to to um, public yeah understandings yeah. and um, and the current legislations um, that are tied to these sorts of monies. Um, so, you know, otherwise, why should they be funded? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. If,
1: if you're going to take our heathen dollars, give us our heathen services. That's all yes, I want. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but at the same time, it's the kind of thing of going like, I remember my lecturers all, because we, I, I studied during the IU 486 debate. <laughs> debate. It's a drug. We, we dispense drugs. That's what we do. We put labels on boxes and we mm. give them to people and people take them usually. Um, but, you know, like my lecturers all got up and basically said the same thing. The dispensing of a medication under a yeah. script, under an authority, yeah. is your job. You don't get to pick and choose which parts of your job. Like in the real world, as an adult, you have to do yeah. the job they employ you for. And sometimes you're going to mm. do things. That Let's
1: you not don't apply clean. that too widely, but like in that <laughs> in that scope, yes.
0: Yeah. No, but but the same. You know, like I've always had the view, particularly with um, conscientious objection, of going, if it really is that bad, the consequence for you actually working yeah. from your morals is to quit. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's another way around it. I think that is the um, that is the position. That is the. You know, you have the right to object to it, but you the responsibility that you take on of that is that yeah. you leave that position. You remove yourself. I mean, from that, that
1: that's I think that's an entirely other conversation. And and if we had a UBI or if we had like welfare that was above the poverty line, I would be championing that. <laughs> but like, there's oh, yeah. there's other f- yeah. Oh,
0: but you know, like a pharmacist is not at risk of yeah, not being able to yeah. get another job.
1: <laughs> anyway, healthcare should not be for profit. There's there's organisations like Healthscope. That are publicly listed, mm-hmm. and they're owned by investment companies, which is, in it, it boggles my tiny little brain. That so, what they do? Apologies, is they, the last
0: we've fallen down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> Feel free to jump in at any time.
1: Shut us up. Yeah. But, what, but what they do is they strip back the healthcare, and they they like to make it to make the organisation look as profitable as possible. They strip everything back. They strip back the workers, the services. They reduce access to things like bandages and things like that. And, you know, anyway, all of this stuff happens. There's no checks and balances. There's no accountability because they're in the private sector. So there's doctors charging $750 an hour per patient for the patients. This is all, by the way, stuff that I mentioned to Jed Kearney when I was in that electorate, who um, just was just like, oh, this sounds terrible. (laughs) Thanks, ANMF. (laughs)
0: I will, this is not on, and I will do absolutely nothing to stop it. This is
1: at the start of COVID. I was, I was, t- I'm just like, we need, there needs to be some accountability. Something needs to happen. People are losing their shifts. They're getting student nurses to take on nurses' roles. And Jed's just like, mm, that sounds serious. And I'm just like, at the very least, you could give us free, um, what's the thing called? You could give us free registration. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, maybe. Mm hmm.
0: Or a placement allowance for Centrelink. You know, like we're to, we're told that nursing is a is an area, nursing and education are areas of national priority for the, this country, for the economics of this country, and we can't even afford to give. Uh, sorry, no, we can't be asked to give students, um, you know, mm-hmm. education students and nursing students enough Centrelink to cover their placements. Yeah.
2: Oh, the the education part in it in and of itself is interesting because yeah, you know, I. am I work in the NTU, um, the jobs ready package and the fact that there was this whole push, we need more teachers, we need more nurses, these are priority areas for for our future, but we're not going to increase um, pensions, including student allowances, we're not going to, you know, not going to pay for that we're going to charge a bunch of people who are only on campus for nine hours a week double what they're paying but um yeah you know we're not going to make all all university free when a bunch of people are being laid off jobs in all sectors um yeah I just saw it all play out and I shake my head and there there has been no sort of forward thought on it like you know Everything's cut price, everything's yeah. individual onus put on people and what are people supposed to survive on if they're on weeks full of placements in dodgy circumstances, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's especially if they get placed in mm. a private hospital,
1: incredibly dodgy circumstances.
0: Yeah, longest placement for pharmacy was nine weeks. Mm. Like, how the fuck are you supposed to survive? And if, you, if, you, if your placement is rural and you don't actually get a say... Mm. In it, like it's you've just spent. I think at that point it's about thirty thousand. Used to be about thirty thousand dollars. I think it's now closer to sixty or seventy. But at that point, you'd spent thirty thousand dollars on your degree, and you're in your last year and your last semester. And it's like you're now spending mm. nine weeks in Weeper working for free. Yeah. Good All luck. That
1: learning. Learning, Stephanie. It's a learning No, no, experience. it's working. Everyone knows. Yeah, Everyone it's working. Knows. It's working. Everyone knows that yeah. it's there. But it's learning. It's a learning experience. To get you used to the workforce. It's to get you Which used to why... being exploited. <laughs> um, All right. Should we wrap it up here? After all of that? <laughs> Bit of a rant. <laughs> it's nice to finish it on a rant. It's what I was known for. Oh, exactly. I think that the first time i ever saw you in public was at uh, one of the invasion day rallies the one oh, right, yeah yeah well i'd been to the one in the previous year and it was, it was quite a bit smaller and then i went to the next one and i'm just like who are all these people
2: <laughs> this is in that was amazing yeah, so Was that the one that I was one of the people who was actually running it? Um, And there was me and Eugenia Flynn or Elizabeth Flynn as she's currently known due to story business, um, Muslim Aboriginal woman. Um, I'll I'll give you this short story before we sign off. That was a really interesting experience because um, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance um, usually run the Invasion Day rallies and... That year, they decided that they weren't going to run it because they were exhausted. They had been running back to back stop force closure rallies every couple of weeks for months. Um, They'd been repeatedly criminalized. They, you know, they were just burnt out and exhausted, had had a lot of sorry business um, and said, yeah, look, we're, we're not going to do it. We're going to go on to country and just heal. And I go, do you want anyone to, else to step up and run it? Because I'm happy to, you know, if you want someone else black to get off their asses and do it, then I'm happy to step up. What we weren't expecting, because that year the rally went from, I think, about 5,000 attendees to about 50,000 in just yeah. one year. Um, and the, the only reason we can really think of, why that happened was, um, you know, due to due to the ongoing work that w- the um, war mob had done with the stop force closure movement, and also due to my media presence plugging in to an event like that, and um, Elizabeth's plugging into it as well because she is also a, um, an amazing writer who's been out there in the public sphere for quite a while. So we had a couple of Indigenous mm. public figures using their f- their clout in order to help grow a movement that had been steadily increasing for over a year. So mm. the Invasion Day rally jumped from 5,000 to 50. Um, but we weren't prepared for that. So all of a sudden, you know, our little sound system that we had was broken and we're trying to communicate to a bunch of people, you know, around us um, on on dodgy union-borrowed megaphones and all this sort of stuff, you know. But it ended up being this amazing day because people got aerial footage of that sort of stuff yeah. and just how it moved through the city. It was the first of the big rallies and um, – Ever since then, you know, Invasion Day rallies have been bigger than what the Australia Day Parade has been. Like, we've seen the growth of that movement and how um, the Invasion Day rally is where people want to be on that day. They don't want to be going and doing, you know, Howard-esque nationalism Anymore. It's, yeah, it's pretty wonderful to see yeah. how that momentum is built and why it's built. But it it did build because because of the hard work of war and because you know, a couple of us decided to to pick up the slack and and plug in what we could to that movement. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah we've seen it go up to I think around at its biggest. I think it's been around a hundred thousand. Um, one year before the rally, it was probably an hour before the rally even kicked off, I got onto Twitter and I wrote, oh, my God, 200,000 people at the Invasion Day rally. How amazing. Um, and the friggin' media actually reported that. And I'm just sort of, you dickheads, there's 80 if we're lucky, um, but, you know, I just sort of – I just picked up a couple of my old union skills about inflating crowd numbers and all of that and putting it out to <laughs> – They love yeah, it, don't they? Yeah. So, so I'd seen them do that with the Change the Rules rally and I thought, well, if they can do that for that, I can do that for Invasion Day. But, yeah, it's been amazing seeing that grow. Um, oh, you know. Yeah, it's been Yeah, really
1: cool. yeah no, it's an incredible mm-hmm. movement and um... – yeah, Parliament yeah, should listen. Yeah. yeah. So
2: thank you for joining no us. No worries. This has been incredible. Uh, where can people find more of your stuff? So at the moment um, I'm mainly just running off my Greens pages. So it's either Celeste Little Greens for Cooper on Facebook or um, I'm keeping my old Twitter. So I tend to swear a lot on Twitter still. So nice. I'm still at Utopiana. I've never, yeah, never bothered getting a separate one for the election for that because I've had that account for 11 years, no, 14, bloody hell. Um, Yeah, so those are the main places. I'm also, my campaign's also on Instagram, so people can find Celeste Little Greens on Instagram and follow the campaign on there. Um, But, yeah, anything more general, if people are looking to um, donate or or um, what's it called, or volunteer or host a placard or something like that, Um, you can actually jump on the Victorian Greens website and find my page on it and donate through there or or apply to host a placard or whatever else. So, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Mm. And have you got any events coming up or anything like that?
1: Yeah, a couple of. There was a very good karaoke one a couple yeah,
2: of weeks ago. Yeah, so karaoke's <laughs> been and gone. That was great fun. We're doing a couple of trivia night and there's a few other things in the pipe um, line at the moment. So, so, definitely get on the Facebook um, page because that's where you're going to see the events roll through. Yeah. Awesome.
1: Cool.
0: Cool.
1: (laughs) Excellent. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. No
2: worries. Thanks for having me.
1: Anytime, (laughs) literally.
0: (laughs) For any reason.
1: (laughs) Cool.